Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us on the program. And I know that I don't do regular shows here recently, but you know, one of the things that I've tried to do, I've tried to be a little bit more reflective about the content that I'm creating. And because I'm not doing like the daily news show, I wanted to do things that had a little bit more staying power, things that were sort of going to be effective and useful to you at any point in uh, your political discourse. And so these are are more what in the radio business we would call evergreens, things that you can watch anytime. So we're not going to deal with any one particular news story or issue today. We're going to be dealing with something that is sort of true across the board. And you may remember this is actually part of a series that I started quite some time ago. And it was about the biggest lies that you see in politics and trying to break those down and exactly what they are. These are primarily lies that are told to you by the left. And so we're going to go over a third lie. And it's actually very similar to the lie that we covered recently, but it's going to come from a different place. So this third big lie that we're going to cover this evening is that rights are given to you by government. Now, this is something that they won't necessarily say explicitly all the time. But if you understand that that's where their head is and you understand that that's really the core of their ideology, that your rights are something that is granted to you by government and people in government and governing documents, that rights are something that are inherently governmental in nature, then you'll understand a lot of the reasons that they make decisions and make policies the way that they do. And so that's why I think that this episode in particular is one that's so vitally important. And so we're going to go over some things in regards to that lie today. So first of all, It's important to understand, as you know, if you've been a fan of the show for any number of uh, any significant number of years or uh, if you've been following me for a while, you'll know that under all of this, as I've always said, leftism is essentially not a rival political ideology. It is a rival religion. And you'll see that it's happening more and more that politicians on the left will talk about things with religious fervor. They'll use religious language talking about things like the, you know, our democracy is sacred, that kind of thing. And so they'll, they'll use this very religious-like language. And by the way, people on the right do that to a degree too, but they tend to usually attribute that when you're talking about something that is inherently moral or relates directly back to Christian religion, whereas people on the left tend to use that language more in government and, and policy and law itself. And so there is a little bit of a difference between those two things. And so they've kind of conflated government with God and government with religion. Politics is their religion. Uh, Politics is affected by a Christian's religion, but it's not the same thing. And so 
we're going to delve into a little bit of the nuances there uh, tonight. And so hopefully this is something that you will find helpful. So this right, uh, the, this idea of rights coming to you directly from the government and not by God or any higher source, that lie is derivative of the last lie that we looked at, lie number two that you can see uh, if you want to go back through my video catalog and, and check out that episode, which that one's really important as well, but it, it's slightly different. Uh, you'll remember that that lie is that the needs of the collective outweigh the needs of the individual. So this is one that actually is sort of the at the core of that one, because if you believe that the needs of the collective are more important than the needs of the individual, one of the ways that you can come to that conclusion, in fact, I would say it's pretty much the only way you can come to that conclusion, is if you believe that your rights are not things that are inherent to you, but that are bestowed upon you, not by God, but by government. And so we're going to discuss that a little bit tonight. So its rebuttal is that rights come from God, and we'll discuss that as well. But ultimately, because they see government as the source of rights, they view government as their God. That's really where all of that comes from. And when you're talking about the left, they tend to think of all your rights as material things, and you don't have to look very far or think very hard to understand that this is the case. So usually when you hear people on the right talk about rights, they talk about things like personal liberty, the right of association, economic freedom, those kinds of things. When you talk to people on the left about rights, you'll notice it's all based in materialism. And by the way, there's not, it's not necessarily that there should never be any material concerns woven into this idea, because we're going to talk a little bit later about property rights being an important thing. That is something that is based in the material world. However, that basis in materialism, it comes from God, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, the idea that certain things belong to some people and not to others is actually something that comes directly from divine revelation. That's not the case when you're talking about leftism. They think that all rights are based in material. So, for example, if you have one guy that has a really big house and one guy that doesn't, well, that could be explained by the fact that the guy has a really big house, invented something that was very useful, and because of that, a lot of people were willing to pay for it or he did something that was really helpful to other people and worked really hard and that's the way that he got that house and the guy that doesn't have a very nice house or maybe doesn't have a house at all, it's not that it was because he was lazy or because he didn't work on it. I'm not saying that that's every single case of somebody that doesn't have a nice house. I'm just saying that looking at nothing but the raw facts of that case, just one guy has a nice house, one guy has a, another house, the person on the right might look at that and say, well, there's a lot of different things that could have led to that outcome. People on the left only look at it and say that there's some kind of injustice because in their mind, everybody has the right to everything. And so because of that, if one guy has a really nice house and the other guy doesn't have a really nice house, there must be some kind of oppression or injustice. And so that's what I mean where all the rights are supposed to come from something materialistic when you're talking about people on the left. You know, they talk about people having a, a right to education, a right to food, a, a right to medical care, a right to all these other things. It's always things that people can do for you as opposed to what the government is not allowed to do to you. That's the difference in negative and positive liberties. And so ultimately, that's really the starting point of this whole ideology of this idea that rights are given to you by government, because in their mind, all rights are not really rooted in you, they're rooted in material goods. And so because of that redistribution, 
when it's done by the government is like God delving out judgment and reward. So in the same way that God, you know, sometimes God reigns on the just and the unjust, that's certainly a biblical principle. But in the same way, because again, to them, government is God, redistribution is God judging people and setting things aright. That is their idea of godly justice, the government coming in and taking things from some people and giving them to other people they feel are more deserving of those things. And so that's the reason that they believe in redistribution. Also, that is how God provides. Ultimately, that's how they see it in the same way that God provides for people. And that's how religious people have viewed it for thousands of years, regardless of your religion. In their mind, it's a government that's supposed to provide. There are certain things in their mind that shouldn't even be allowed to be discussed in the private market because ultimately that's something that government should do for you. I mean, you need to look no further than the medical debate. Uh, when it comes to things like Obamacare, they want the government to be the thing that is the sole provider of this service. And because they view it as a right, they think that everybody should pay into it and that everybody should, well, not everybody should pay into it. I mean, half the people in the country don't pay taxes, but all of the taxpayers certainly should pay into it. And then that should be distributed evenly by government because government ultimately is the provider. And so you can really see this idea manifest itself in many different ways on the left. And ultimately, that's why they despise personal charity. They hate that. And the, you'll see the reason that you look at, for example, you know, countless studies that show that people that are more politically conservative give more money to charity, they volunteer more, that kind of thing. That mainly comes from the idea that in in the mind of a leftist, it's not a, up to them to you know go volunteer at a homeless shelter or whatever. It's their job to get government to force people to do that. So in other words, you might not volunteer. And so in their mind, what they their job is to go forward and do legislation that would raise your taxes so that you are forced to give money to charity. See, in their mind, that's far more virtuous. And that's one of the reasons that I say politics is their religion, as opposed to individual people doing good things and spreading the gospel, which is the method that God uses. They prefer a method wherein they actually pray to their God, in other words, engage in policymaking through the government, and then the government provides for you. And again, it's, it's a complete reversal of the roles here. In their mind, government is God. And so because of that, they, they go to government and they persuade government, just like a, a religious person might try to do with prayer. They persuade government to provide for people they think need to be provided for as opposed to actually going forth and doing the work themselves. Now, by the way, I actually do know people that are charitable on the left. I'm not saying this is a universal rule. I'm saying that statistically, people on the right tend to give more to charity. And this is one of the big reasons why. They believe, uh, people on the left, that what we should do is we should just establish a system where there's no need for charity ever. And you don't have to rely on people's good graces because the government just takes care of everything. Now, that's never worked anytime it's ever been a, uh, done in history, but you can understand why from their perspective, they feel that that would be preferable. And so they would rather spend their energy trying to get government to get exactly the right combination of laws and policies and the right combination of taxation and redistribution. And then the world would just be a utopia and you'd never need charity in the first place. And so that's really kind of where their, their head is and where they're coming from on that. So to prove my point into, so this isn't just a bunch of abstract theory that I'm throwing at you. I'm going to go ahead and go through several different figures on the left throughout history to explain to you where all of this ideology comes from. 
So first of all, and I think that this is this one's really important. We'll go ahead and go to the uh, one of the patron saints, really, of this idea of your rights coming from government and not God. And that comes from a man that really transformed the federal government in ways that most people don't even really understand. And that is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So FDR gave this speech. This was his State of the Union back in 1944. And I want you to notice all of the things that he says are rights. He actually says, this is not me editorializing, in his speech, he was talking about a new Bill of Rights. And so this is what he says should be included in the new Bill of Rights, not the one that we're familiar with that has freedom of speech, freedom of the press, all that stuff. So this is FDR back in 1944. Look at the first one. The right to a useful and re, uh, remunerative job in, in, in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation. Number two, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. Number three, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return, which will give him and his family a decent living. Number four, the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and dominated by monopolies at home or abroad. Number five, the right of every family to a decent home. Number six, the right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. Number seven, the right to adequate protection from economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. And number eight, the right to a good education. Now, really sit back and think about all those different things. Now, whether you agree with those things in and of themselves or not, I mean, I'm a person that obviously values education highly, and I obviously want people to be taken care of medically, but I don't want the government to do that. FDR is saying this is the new Bill of Rights of things that the government should be forced, required by law to do for every individual. Again, it goes back to this idea of all your rights being rooted in materialism. Your rights are the things that you have or the stuff that you have access to, they're not something that's inherent and given to you by birth. And it may require other people to, in some way, have to provide a good or a service to you against their will if that's what it takes. Which, by the way, is kind of like slavery. But if that's what, what it takes and that's what it costs, then that's what they're going to have to do because that's what a right is. People don't have a right to deny you rights. Therefore, if all of these things are part of the quote-unquote new Bill of Rights, then they have to be provided to you no matter what. So again, this is where FDR's head is. He believes that government should be providing all of these different things, food, medical care, education. They should be providing you a job, all of these things all the things that traditionally Americans look to God to provide for them. And so it really does illustrate where their head is at and, and how they came to this conclusion. And if you think maybe like I'm overstating the case here a little bit, or that uh, you may be sitting there and scratching your head and thinking, is that really something that, that the left has been pining for, uh, pining for for years? I mean, if you look at their rhetoric today, it's really exactly the same thing. You could look back and be like, oh, well, the, you know, the Democrats have really gone crazy in the past 10, 15 years. They've always been this way. This goes all the way back to FDR. And by the way, 
His cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, a Republican, held a lot of the same views. And so it's not necessarily just a Republican-Democrat problem. A lot of people with R's behind their name really think the same way that FDR did. They may fight with the Democrats over who gets to control the big vehicle of government, but ultimately they think government should be providing the same stuff regardless. And that's extremely evident in the way that they talk about these different goods and services. So when you really boil it all down, this is something, it, it's really, this idea of progressivism and this idea of rights coming from government instead of God, it's a cancer that really has infected both sides. One side far more than the other, but really there's not a political party that is completely, that their, their ledger is clean of all of this. And ultimately, this all comes from the same source. It goes all the way back to Karl Marx. And so to illustrate my point here, let's look at the Soviet constitution and what it says about it. And you don't even have to take my word for it. Let's go ahead and look at this particular piece from uh, the Boston University International Law Journal. So again, not a, not a conservative source, not just me editorializing. This is their description of the Soviet constitution. The third distinction between Soviet and American policies posited by, uh, by Dean concerns the beneficiaries of human rights. Marxist-Leninists hold that only, and this is a quotation, only through the emergence of classless society will an individual realize as a part of the community the creativity, purposefulness inherent in his nature. Therefore, individuals must subordinate their own needs and desires in order to fulfill the needs of the collective. Consequently, Soviet legal theory holds that it is the collective society generally that is the ultimate beneficiary of human rights. Western legal theory holds that the individual, that it is the individual who is the beneficiary of human rights, which are to be asserted against the government. So it's showing a very, very big contrast there. So Soviet legal theory says that ultimately the collective, the, the larger society is the beneficiary of human rights and therefore the rights belong to the collective, which means that the, the collective has the ability, in this case the government, to take those rights away if you want. That last line there contrasts that with Western legal theory, which holds that it is the individual who is the beneficiary of human rights and it is the government that is restrained because of those human rights existence. So that's the difference in what we were talking about earlier. It's the difference in positive liberties and negative liberties. Positive liberties are things that people have to do for you versus negative liberties, which are things that the government is prevented from doing to you. And so with that in mind, and I want you to continue to think about all of the different things that FDR said should be in the new Bill of Rights. And then let's look at this, which is, again, just go straight to the horse's mouth. You've already seen the, the legal scholars comment on this, but let's go straight back to the original source because you know how much I love doing that. Let's go back straight to the original source and take a look at the 10 pillars of communism. Let's go ahead and read those real quickly. So this is essentially the communist bill of rights, as it were. So again, Karl Marx, 1848, the 10 pillars of communism. Number one, Abolition of property in land and application of all re rents of land to the public purpose. Pillar number two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Pillar three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Pillar four, confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. 
Pillar 5. Centralization of credit in the hands of the state by the means of a national bank with the state capital and exclusive monopoly. Pillar 6. Centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. Pillar 7. Extensions of factories and instruments of production owned by the state. The bringing into cultivation of the wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. Pillar 8. Equal liability of all to labor. Establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. Pillar 9. Combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries. Gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the population over the country. Pillar 10. Free education for all. Children in public schools. Abolition of children's factory labor in its present form. Combination of education with industrial production. So there you have it. It's the 10 pillars of communism. In other words, sort of the communist version of the Bill of Rights. And you'll notice a very distinct and recognizable pattern. It's really, really similar to what FDR was talking about. Now, he didn't go quite as far as to say there should be no such thing as private property. He didn't quite go that far. He didn't uh, say that we ought to seize all of the land and everything should be centrally controlled. But if you do have central control of the things that FDR was talking about, where the government's in charge of feeding everybody, the government's in charge of media, the government's in charge of medicine, the government's in charge of all those things, it doesn't take too long to figure out the government's going to be running pretty much everything if they seize those major pillars of society. And that's exactly what Marx was advocating for. And you'll notice how many of those things overlapped, like free Medicare, uh, for medical care, like free education, like, uh, you know, the basically having a centralized planning body to handle all of those things, having in FDR's case, the federal government and Marx's case, the centralized government, regardless of what it was. There is a de-emphasis on the rights of the individual, and you have to sometimes gloss over that in order to fulfill the rights of the collective or the rights of society. In other words, your individual rights may have to be put on the back burner and you may have to sacrifice those because ultimately it's the government that gives you your rights so we can take them away if we need to, if it's for quote unquote, the greater good. Now, we know the actual results of that communism has been tried time and time and time and time again and it always ends in disaster and so what you have is it doesn't actually end in the greater good for the community but that's always the goal that's always what they're attempting to do whether you're talking about the soviet union uh nazism fascism whenever they try to do centralized control and base their ideas off of what marx was talking about it always ends in misery and failure for everybody else i mean just look at venezuela today and so I mean, really, when you, you boil it all down, that's actually what you're going to get is the results of that. But do you notice how often there's that interplay between those two things? How often you see that uh, interplay between the two? And ultimately, it does go back to the same idea. And let's just go to Marx one more time to prove the point in this idea of individualism versus collectivism. Uh, this is from one of his books. I believe the title of it is On the Jews or On the Jewish Question. There we go. So this is Karl Marx back in 1844. Individual inner existence is a product of societal interactions without which the self has no existence. 
I mean, there you have it right there. Marches right out saying individuals have no rights. The only rights that they may have are rights in relation to the collective. And if they are just by themselves, they have no inherent rights. Their rights do not come from God. They come from government. And that's why Marx can say all of the things that he does in the Communist Manifesto is because if we have to abridge some people's individual property rights or the, the rights that they have to other things, the rights to their goods and services, the product of their labor, all those things. Look, if, if we've got to scrap that, take away the rights of their inheritance, that kind of thing. If we have to scrap all that for the greater good, then that's what we're going to do, because ultimately you're supposed to benefit society that way. You're not supposed to benefit anything else. And so uh, that's really where we are with all of that. That's really what he believed. And if you think that this is just like some old fuddy-duddy legal theory and it doesn't really affect anything that we're going with today, modern Democrats believe this too. In fact, we can go directly back to just a few years ago with President Barack Obama. Uh, but the Supreme Court never ventured into the issues of redistribution of wealth uh, and sort of more basic issues of political and, and, and uh, economic justice in the society. And uh, to that extent, as radical as I think people tried to characterize the Warren Court, uh, it wasn't that radical. It, it didn't break free from the essential constraints that were placed uh, uh, by the Founding Fathers in the Constitution, at least as it's been interpreted, and Warren Court interpreted it in the same way that that generally the Constitution is a charter of negative liberties, says what the states can't do to you, says what the federal government can't do to you, but it doesn't say what the federal government or the state government must do on your behalf. Well, there you have it. Barack Obama back in 2001, he and his policies bore that out. He was continuing the same legacy that FDR and Karl Marx gave him, that ultimately I believe the government should do things for you as opposed to the government should be restrained and should be uh, unable to do things to you. And by the way, that's one of the few clips that Barack Obama is talking about that I have obviously don't think that his, ide his ideology is good, but I agree with everything that he's saying. His characterization of positive versus, neg versus negative rights is actually correct. And so in that idea, He's saying that ultimately, I really prefer to think about not what the Constitution says, because that's the charter of negative liberties. That's bad. That's just saying the government's not allowed to do this, this and this to you. What he would prefer is a Constitution, a Bill of Rights, just like FDR proposed a new Bill of Rights, of all the things that the government is required to do for you. And that's the difference. I prefer a government that basically keeps people from killing each other and then otherwise leaves them alone. And that's ultimately where my belief system is, but Barack Obama is the exact opposite. He believes that government should step in and basically do everything for you. And so that's really the difference in the two. And you can see this manifested in different things. If you watch like a, a Democrat presidential debate or a governor debate, if you're talking about primary where it's Democrats against Democrats, they're all trying to one up each other on all the stuff that we can make government do for you. They're fighting over who's going to give out the most stuff. And that's really how they win elections is they promise people things and people vote for them because they want the things, because they believe in a charter of positive liberties, like Barack Obama just said. That's the reason Bernie Sanders goes around calling everything a human right. He's like, uh, housing is a human right and medical care is a human right. And, you know, having a car or having a phone or having high speed internet, it's a human right. Well, that's where that comes from, because if you believe stuff, 
is what your rights are and that your rights come from government, of course you're going to believe that all those things are human rights. Because obviously a human right can't be high-speed internet if the internet didn't exist, you know, 50 years ago. Or high-speed internet certainly didn't exist 50 years ago. But if government gives you your rights, all those things can become rights because the government can change periodically whenever it wants to, really, what your rights are going to be and what they aren't. There's no solid state. There's no anchor. There's no thing to, to really ground yourself in. There's no fundamental or higher power. It's just whatever government decides is a right in the moment. And so that's why you get people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, now Joe Biden, going around telling you all these people are right. So, I mean, remember, uh, 10 years ago, we would have gone out and executed people for trying to dress up a grown man, dress up as a woman and rub his scrotum across a child's face. Like that would have been something that they probably wouldn't have even had to worry about the justice system. They would have just shot him on sight. And now we're saying that that's a human right. Because again, rights change if you believe that government is the thing that gives you rights. There's nothing intrinsic or higher about it. It is just whatever the government decides, whatever the collective decides in the moment, that's what your rights are. Because ultimately, the collective is the thing that's supposed to benefit from those rights. The individual doesn't matter. And that's where all of this comes from. It all, it's all springing, it's all fruit from the same poison tree, to use the legal analysis. So let's go ahead and go into the rebuttal. And if you remember what I've been doing in this series so far, I've been giving three forms of rebuttal. So I'll give the biblical rebuttal and the uh, legal rebuttal and the moral rebuttal. So we'll go ahead and start with the biblical rebuttal. So we'll go ahead and start with Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. All right, so Romans 1, 18 through 20. For, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse." So what Paul is dealing with in this particular passage in Romans is extremely instructive on this particular matter, because what God is saying is that when God created the world, there was a natural order to it. There was a set of rules that if you violated those rules, it were, they were going to punish you, not because God was making some conscious effort to punish you or something like that. It was more like, this is the way that, the, that nature works, and if you try to violate nature, you try to go against nature, you're going to get punished. It's the same way like when you see an electric fence. If you touch the electric fence and it shocks you, is that because electricity hates you? Is that because uh, some being that's controlling electric fen uh, fences decided to punish you? No, it's because of the nature of the thing. You have violated the nature of the thing that you're interacting with and therefore you got shocked because of it. And so it's not that there's some kind of active punishment going on. It's just the way that nature works is instructive in that way. And so that's really what Paul is arguing there, that even people that had no advantage of divine revelation that didn't know God, and that's how you get people like Aristotle actually getting pretty close to the truth of God without having any divine revelation whatsoever, is you can observe nature 
and you can observe its rules and observe the way that it works and functions and the harmony in it and all of those things. And you can, you, without any divine nature, really get pretty close to understanding how the world works and understanding God and his divine design for that. And if that is the case, if there are inherent rules in nature that govern the universe, then that would mean that there are inherent rules that govern humans. Regardless of whether you believe in God or not, that is self-evident. And if that is the case, then there must be certain things, certain rights that are internal, that are something that belong to the individual on the individual level. So even without delving into the question of whether or not God exists or seeing an exact scripture from divine revelation, Paul is saying there, even if you had no divine revelation whatsoever, you can understand that the universe works by a certain set of rules and that we can operate within those rules to enhance our life, which would imply that there is a certain nature to man and that he has certain rights that come not from anything that he does or because it was granted to him by some kind of dictator or some kind of government body, but it's something that is inherent in him. Now, the explanation for that actually does take divine revelation because you have to go back to creation for that. But the principle there is something that you can get to even without divine revelation. And Paul is actually attesting to that right there because God worked that certain level of natural inherent truths into the universe. So ultimately, when I was going through this, because that was my starting point, but I knew pretty early on and it became very evident to me that there was no way that I was going to be able to get through every single individual right that is talked about in the Bible because, you know, the rights of mankind, even the founders said that they couldn't come up with an exhaustive list of them. They did the best they could with the Bill of Rights, but they specifically left in a proviso in the Ninth Amendment because they understood that they weren't going to be able to do an exhaustive list because there might be rights out there that they haven't thought of yet. And it's not that they would discover them because new technology came up or the world changed or anything like that. It was just because, you know, understanding theology and how vast and how multifaceted it is, that there may have been something that they missed. And so because of that, if there was a right that existed beforehand, they didn't want people to be able to say, well, that wasn't a right. And so that gives you some idea of the scope that I'm dealing with here. But I decided to narrow it down to three rights, the three primordial rights that the founders believed in. And that would be life, liberty, and property. That's what they wrote into the Declaration of Independence. That is what was observed by the philosopher John Locke, who was basing his teachings on the Bible as well. And so that's really where we're going to start. We're going to take a look at life, liberty, and property. And is there biblical precedent for those three things? Because if there's biblical precedent for those three things, we can probably assume that there's going to be more in the Bible. And by the way, there is. I've actually done classes that are a little more exhaustive than this. Uh, but ultimately, if we can find it for those three primordial rights, we can kind of understand where the right of other things come from as well. And so let's go ahead and look at our very first one. So we're going to look at life first. So this is the most basic of all rights. It's the first right. And without it, no other right can exist. Dead people don't have rights. So let's go ahead and look at Genesis 4, verses 8 through 11. Cain talked to his brother Abel. And it happened that when they were in the field, Cain arose up and uh, against his brother and Abel, uh, his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, 
I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Then he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. That is the world's first mur murder. Cain kills his brother Abel. And for all we know, that's actually the first time anybody died. So it may not only be the first murder, it might actually be the first death. We just aren't sure. But whether it was or whether it wasn't, Cain killed his brother. And God got upset about it. Why? Why is that something that God would frown upon? First of all, no one's died before. Second of all, there's no law. The story of Cain and Abel comes way before there's any law. In fact, they may be some of the only people on the planet Earth. Now, there's more people because we know that because of the way that the story unfolds is that Cain is saying that there's going to be other people around that are going to seek to kill him because of him murdering his brother. And God affirms that. And so there's a very strong implication that it's not just Adam and Eve and their two sons, that there's other people roaming the Earth when this story happens. However, regardless of that little side note, the thing that is being established here is in the absence of any kind of law, God has not sent the Ten Commandments down. There is no law from God saying thou shalt not kill. That doesn't exist yet. And yet Cain killed his brother and God punished him for it. Well, how is that fair? Because the law was inherent. Abel had an inherent right to life. And Cain whether he had divine revelation or not, should have been able to figure that out and understood that God would not like him killing his brother. It wasn't God playing favorites or being unfair. Cain knew what he was doing was wrong. Not only did God, God give him a conscience, but he gave him a reasonable mind that should be able to observe these things. And just like we saw in Romans, be able to discern from that even before a law existed, that taking another person's life is immoral. And so with that in mind, we can see very quickly whether there's a law or not a law, even before God had revealed it through divine revelation, taking another person's life is a violation of the laws of nature and nature's creator. Therefore, you have a right to life. All right, with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at Genesis 9, 3 through 6, where it states, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I have given everything to you as I gave the green plant, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, the blood. Certainly I will require your lifeblood from every animal I will require it, and from every person, from every man as his brother, I will require the life of a person. Whoever sheds human blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made mankind. So what does that tell you? If you shed human blood, the recompense for that is that other humans have a responsibility to spill your blood. Not out of vengeance, but out of justice. Why? Because again, everybody has a right to life. And when you take that life, you have violated nature and violated God. And so because of that, when that happens, you have foregone your right to live. You have forfeited your own life. And so there are consequences, natural consequences, to what you're seeing. That's how we know that you have an inherent right to life given to you by God. Again, that's part of the Noahic Covenant. That's before the law of Moses existed. 
So there is divine revelation there in the sense that God told this to Noah. So divine revelation does exist in that sense. But ultimately, what he's saying here is that I'm giving this regulation to you, and this regulation is based off of your inherent right to life. So that's how we understand that God is, uh, is giving them instruction that life is something that must not be violated, and if it is violated, you have done something to violate nature. Those rights are inherent to you as a person, and if you look there at the very tail end of that verse, it says, because you are made in God's image. Therefore, as we are all image bearers of God, as we all carry the Imago Dei, the divine spark inside of us, the little part of us that is God, that God imparted to us from his own self, because we are his image bearers, that means that taking away the life of somebody who is an also, also an image bearer of God is something that violates your own soul and violates the laws of nature. That's why you have a right to life is because unlike animals and unlike plants and unlike the other things, because it actually talks about that. It says it's okay to eat plants, it's okay to eat animals, it's okay to do all that. You must not take the life of your fellow man because they are image bearers of God. That's where all of that comes from. So you have an inherent right, an inherent thing that makes your life valuable above the life of plants and animals. And that's the reason that you have an inherent right to life granted to you specifically when God implanted his image upon you. So that's where the right to life really ultimately comes from. So that's uh, what unborn, sorry, inborn or inalienable means when we see it in the Declaration of Independence. Inborn means, you know, upon your creation, you have this right and it cannot be taken away from you. That's ultimately what it means. So let's go ahead and look at the second pillar of this, liberty. So when it comes to liberty, Exodus and Deuteronomy both have slavery laws. And a lot of people have used this to point to to say that the Bible is pro-slavery and the Bible upholds and advocates for slavery and all these other things. It's not true. I won't get into all of the nuances because that's a whole other discussion and a whole other lesson. But I will get into this one aspect of it. So we're going to go and fast forward beyond Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And we'll talk specifically about what was happening, basically the application of that centuries later in the book of Jeremiah. So let's go ahead and go to Jeremiah 34, verses 13 through 17. And this regards exactly what he's talking about. This is what the Lord, the Lord, uh, sorry, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I made a covenant with your forefathers on the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you has set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served for six years, and you shall send him out free from you. But your forefather did not obey me, nor incline their ear to me. Although recently you had turned and done what was right in my sight, each one of you proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name, yet you turned and profaned my name, and each person took back his male servant and each his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjugation to be your male and female servants. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me in proclaiming release, each one of you to his brother and each to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword and to the plague and to the famine. And I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So what is Jeremiah talking about there? 
God is very, very upset with Israel for releasing their Hebrew servants. So people that were their brothers, because that's what they were supposed to do. If you understand the old law, after six years of service, didn't matter how much of their debt they had worked off, because that's what slavery was back then. It was a way to work off your debt. After seven years, all the slaves went free. There were no more slaves in Israel on that seventh year, on the Sabbath year. And by the way, you weren't even allowed to extend it past then. So like, let's say that you had a guy that acquired 10 years of debt, but there's only three years to the Jubilee. Guess what? He only served you for three years because there was mercy worked into that law. And so people can say what they want to about the Bible being a pro-slavery document and all that stuff. Do you know of any system of slavery anywhere in the world from any society where after six years the slaves just all went free? The Bible understood that, especially back then when you didn't have things like bankruptcy and you didn't have the kind of imprisonment that you would in, in normal circumstances, or at least in circumstances that we think of today, that there was going to need to be some kind of way for people to work off debt or uh, to be able, and that was, by the way, pretty much the only way that you could become a slave in Israel in this time. Uh, either that or you belonged to a pagan nation which was punished for their disobedience to God through slavery. But after seven years, the slaves all go free. No society anywhere in history had that rule. And that was because the Bible has always been an extremely pro-liberty document. The reason you're not allowed to keep somebody past that time, because even if they've worked up a debt against you, and even if they have more debt to pay off, the Bible always defaults towards liberty. Freedom is always something that the Bible strives to default back to because it is an extremely pro-liberty document. I mean, the basis of the Hebrew faith starts with Abraham, but it really comes to fruition and, and becomes formalized and becomes something with teeth at the Exodus when the Israelites flee slavery. And by the way, the instructions in the law of Moses specifically say that the reason you're supposed to do this and the reason that you're supposed to treat even your slaves well is because remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You don't want to treat them the way that you were treated in Egypt. And so all of these things point back to the idea that the default for God was always to be in favor of liberty. You have a right to your own liberty. And so even when you have found yourself in slavery, you're supposed to be able to go free after a certain amount of time. That was always God's natural proclivity. And also, there is a natural consequence to not honoring this idea of, of freedom. Again, because the natural world is geared in a certain way and God created it to reflect his divine plan, people that engage in slavery, especially cruel slavery and human trafficking, in order to facilitate that slavery, there are punishments that are involved in that. Here in America, we fought a long and bloody and incredibly costly civil war to bathe in blood, to basically have that sin removed from us. And even then, it took decades later for the people that were the subject of that slavery to get their full rights. And so it was an extremely long process. And when we were talking about the natural consequences of that, who won? The side that was against slavery. And there might have been some divine intervention there, but let's be honest, the real reason that they won is because they had way more resources than the South. Why did they have more resources than the South? Because the South relied on slavery and slave labor, and that was something that was an economic shackle for them. The North had developed industry, had developed new technology. They had a greater abundance in everything, including food. A lot of people try to, a lot of people think because it's the South 
that they probably had more food than the other side. Well, no, they had a lot of cotton, but you can't eat cotton. And so because of that, the South's economy revolved around slavery. And so you had a handful of extremely wealthy people and pretty much everybody else, slave or not, was poor. In the North, you actually had people away from slavery that were able to develop industry, to develop businesses, and they had economic growth that way outpaced their Southern neighbors. And slavery was the main cause of that. And because of that, they were able to easily win the war. Now, was there divine intervention in that? Yeah, I think there probably was. But the truth is, God's intervention wasn't really all that necessary because the natural effect of their choices led to better outcomes for them. And so that's, again, a actual real-world example where we can see God's natural consequences coming into play and favoring those who more correctly align with his ideal. And that ideal is liberty. So, ultimately, this is a really interesting one for me because I am not against incarceration, but it is a fascinating fact that Dr. Dave Miller brought up to me one time, actually when he was on my show. And Dave Miller, a Bible scholar and in charge of Apologetics Press, he brought up to me, he said, Caleb, did you notice that in all of the laws through the, the Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's not a single time where incarceration is a punishment? I had never thought of that. And I'm not saying that that means that we need to go ahead and get rid of incarceration now in America as a punishment for crimes. But it is pretty darn interesting that in God's ideal country and his theocracy that he established in Israel, incarceration wasn't a thing. Now, there was, again, like I said, there was debtor slavery so that if you had acquired a great deal of debt and weren't able to pay your debts, you did have to become somebody's servant for a number of years until the Jubilee or sorry, until the Sabbath year, the Jubilee comes at 50 years, which that was also when they were set free. Uh, but anyway, that actually was a thing that happened, but incarceration in the strictest sense, in other words, somebody sitting in a jail cell all day, that was never a prescribed punishment in Israel. And I do find that fascinating. Now, could a civilization survive without that? I think they probably could. It seems like Israel did, at least for a while. But that is really interesting that the Bible is actually so pro-freedom uh, pro that it seems like slavery was an option for people that were uh, in that kind of situation, but they were allowed to go out after only six years at the absolute most. And incarceration was never a prescribed punishment. That's how pro-liberty the Bible is. And so I'm not saying that we need to abolish the prison system that we have in America now. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm willing to go quite that far. But it is a fascinating point that Dr. Miller brought up. And it does show how God always defaults to liberty and that there is an inherent right inside human beings to be free. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and go to property. So this is a pretty obvious one. And uh, it's not a very long verse, but it gets the point across. This is from the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus 20:15. You shall not steal. Okay, that's pretty clear. Now you might say, what does that have to do with property? Well, you can't steal things if property isn't a thing. The commandment not to steal automatically assumes it is inherent within it that if you can steal something, that means there must be things that exist in the world that are not yours. See, I've heard people try to make the case that 
Israel was supposed to be basically a, a commune, that it was basically a big communist state. I'm like, I don't know which one you're reading, but it's not the Bible that I'm reading. If you have the ability to steal from another person, it implies they have property and that property belongs to them and not you. Property is that which you have the right to deny access to others to. You know, it's not my car if anybody can come by and drive it any time they want to. If somebody can just come by and take my car whenever they feel they feel like it and there's no consequences for that, then it's not really my car. If anybody can just walk into my house anytime they want to and take any of my food, do I own anything? And so the idea that you can steal things implies that property is a thing and that is a value that God holds. That being said, there's actually another commandment in the Ten Commandments that says exactly the same thing just a few verses later, at least in terms of what we're talking about. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, so there you have it in very explicit terms. It belongs to your neighbor because it doesn't belong to you. And it says not to covet. So now it's interesting. We not only have the command because do not steal is very brief and, and poignant, but it doesn't really give any details. Now we have, you're not even allowed to covet, to desire, to want things that are not yours. And so that's much more of an internal regulation than an external regulation. I mean, yeah, you don't steal, but whether you steal or not, you don't even desire after those things that are your neighbors because it's theirs and it's not yours. And because it's not yours, you shouldn't be desiring after it. So again, implicit in that, well, actually explicit in the way that it describes it there, because it says your neighbors, um, but very implicit in that regulation as well is the idea that there is a right to your own property. There are certain things that you own and you can deny access to that to other people. So here we get two out of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. This is the core of the Law of Moses. And two out of the ten, so 20%, of the laws in there deal directly with property. So you do have an inherent right to property and divine revelation tells us exactly that. And let's not also forget, I mean, this is not something that is really just left in the Old Testament. The New Testament is instructive in this and well, let's, let's go ahead and look directly to the words of Jesus Christ himself in Luke 10 verse seven. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer is deserving of his wages. Do not move from house to house. So this is Jesus giving instructions for his disciples when they're traveling. And you'll notice that the phrase that it uses in there, that the, the worker, the laborer, depending on your translation, is worthy of his wage. In other words, if you do work, you are entitled to a wage. You are entitled to a good for that. You might say on first glance, well, that sounds very communistic. Well, no. The idea that you have done work and earned something for that in, in return is not something that's communistic at all. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Because it implies that there are certain things that you own and that you are entitled to, not because of your simple existence, but because you have labored for them. And that you have done labor to create a thing, and that thing therefore becomes your property. You have the right to the fruits of your own labor. And so that's something that Jesus Christ himself says. Notice also that there is no minimum amount. It's not saying like, okay, well, if you work, then you're supposed to get exactly this much of amount of wage or whatever. No, if you go out and chop wood, the product of that labor is you, you have wood, like you, you have firewood. I mean, 
whatever it is you go out and create, you are entitled to the fruit of that labor, but it's not like, oh, well, if you work real hard and try real hard, you're supposed to get X amount of dollars. That's not the way the Bible works. And so you are entitled to property and the, the bread that you have provided for yourself, but you're not entitled to some kind of set amount just because you labored for it. And then you have the reverse of that in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12. That's the inverse. Because there Jesus is saying, you should go out and you should work so that you can be worthy of your wage. 2 Thessalonians says the opposite. It says, if you don't work, you shall not eat. And so we have the principle really expressed in the New Testament in both ways. And we'll look at one more verse that kind of drives this idea home. And it comes from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So you'll notice there in this little story about Peter talking to a man named Ananias who sold a plot of land and then gave the money to the apostles, but he really kept back a big chunk of the money for himself and just lied about it. So Peter was very upset with him for lying, but you'll see that he asserts in that verse that while the money was Ananias's, you didn't have to lie. That money is yours. You could have sold it and did whatever you wanted to with it. So even when you're talking about giving to God, God asserts that anything that you give to him is still something that is under your control while it belongs to you. Now, ultimately, God owns everything, and so any control that you have over it is ultimately granted to you by him. But regardless of that, he's saying that you have a level of stewardship and control over that, and you could have done whatever you wanted to with it while it was yours, which implies what? Ananias had property rights. There was a right inherent given to him by God to own his own property. And when he sold his property and got returned for it, he was entitled to use those proceeds however he wished. And so, ultimately, the Bible really does support this idea that private property is an inherent right given to you by God. Now, there's countless other examples, but these are the most basic, and they're the ones that illustrate the point that I wanted to make the best. So, now that we've really gone through the biblical rebuttal, let's go to the constitutional rebuttal. So, uh, first of all, if you look in the Constitution, sorry, if you look in the Declaration of Independence first, because it's in the Constitution too, but it's really more explicitly stated in the Declaration of Independence. If you look in the Declaration of Independence, it gives real credence to this idea right away. So let's go ahead and, and look at that. This is the really the money statement of the entire Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Sounds a lot like Romans 1. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, notice where the rights are coming from, by their creator with certain unalienable rights, unalienable, in other words, you can't take them away from you, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I will make a slight note here that originally it was life, liberty, and property in Jefferson's original draft. They changed it to the pursuit of happiness specifically because they didn't want the southern states to be able to argue that, well, we have life, liberty, and property, and slaves are property, therefore we have a right to those. So there was a little bit of uh, wordplay going on there with changing it to pursuit of happiness. Not that that's a bad choice per se, 
but it was always traditionally life, liberty, and property, and it was that in the original draft. And life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is pretty close to that. But there is this idea in the Constitution that you have unalienable rights. In other words, they cannot be taken away from you by a government or from anybody else. And that they come to you directly from your creator by virtue of you being made in his image. And that, that is a self-evident truth, exactly like what Romans 1 was talking about. Something that is obvious to everybody. And so ultimately, that is where the founders really made their statement of what they believed. And you can see that the founders got this directly from Scripture. We've looked through the Bible and seen exactly where they would have gotten these ideas. Also remember that there's the line in there about nature's God and nature's law. So they are appealing directly to God and establishing that he is the source of these ideas that they're putting forward. So let's look at it in more explicit terms, and we'll go directly to one of the founders himself, Samuel Adams. And I could have picked hundreds of different quotes from the founders about this, but these are the ones that I chose to go with. This is when Samuel Adams became the governor after the death of the current governor. So Samuel Adams, right as he became governor after John Hancock had died. It is the greatest absurdity to suppose in the power of one or a number of men at the entering into society to renounce their essential natural rights or the means of preserving those rights when the grand end of civil, civil government from the very nature of its institution is for the support, protection, and defense of those very rights, the principle of which, as is before observed, are life, liberty, and property. So right there, you have life, liberty, and property, again mentioned, and that these are essential natural rights, and to give those up defeats the entire purpose of government. So let's go ahead and look at the rest of this quote. If men, through fear, fraud, or mistake, should in terms renounce or give up any essential natural right, the eternal law of reason and the grand end of society would absolutely vacate such renunciation. The right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty, it is not the power of man to alienate this gift and voluntarily become a slave. So Sam Adams is saying, not only can other people not take your rights from you, even if you wanted to give your right up, you cannot give it up. It is something that is ingrained in you from the beginning. Now, you can choose not to exercise that right, but whether or not you have the right or not, that's something that can never be taken away from you, not even by you. And the whole purpose of government, according to Adams, is ultimately to secure those rights of the individual, not gather rights for the collective or do the greater good, but to preserve the individual rights. That's why he says when you enter society, you don't just forego those rights. In fact, the whole purpose of entering society is to preserve and further those rights. And so it's the exact opposite of what people like Marx and FDR and Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama have been preaching all this time. The founders believed the exact opposite of them, and it came from this idea that your rights come from God, not from government. That's what Sam Adams believed. It's what John Adams believed. It's what all of the founders believed. And that's why they signed their name to it in the Declaration of Independence. Sam Adams was giving a little bit more explanation behind that, but that's what the Declaration says in a nutshell anyway. And let's look at one more quote by him because this is from that same speech, but it really drives the same point home. So again, this is Sam Adams. In the supposed state of nature, 
all men are equally bound by the laws of nature, or, to speak more properly, the laws of the Creator. They are imprinted by the finger of God on the heart of man. Thou shalt do no injury to thy neighbor, is the voice of nature and reason, and it is confirmed by written revelation. So Sam Adams is saying those rights would exist whether there was written revelation or not. Again, sounds an awful lot like Romans 1. But whether it exists or not, we do have it confirmed by divine revelation, and because of that, we have an obligation to see it through. Ultimately, that is what Samuel Adams believed. The founders are a complete reversal of this idea of collective rights or this idea of rights coming from government. None of them believe that. They all believe that rights were something that was inherent and given to you by God. And you might try to rebut that if you were on the other side because the Bill of Rights deals with all these natural rights and, and they assume that these rights are all inherent given to each man because they are made in the image of God. So the obvious rebuttal has, wait, wait, wait. But why are there those regulations? I mean, wouldn't that imply that government can take your rights? No, it actually can't. Think about it. Let's just take one example, the freedom of speech. Can the government really take away your freedom of speech? They can do the best that they can to suppress it. They can even kill you if they, you say something that you don't like. That is an abridgment of the freedom of speech, but they can't really take it away from you. I mean, unaliving you is really the only option they have to take it away from you completely. And even then, they're violating your right to life. And so as long as you are living, as long as you are continuing on this earth, even if they do things to try to suppress your voice, they can't really take it away completely. And what Sam Adams is saying is because government ought to recognize and be instituted specifically to protect those rights, then the government should never do anything to try to suppress them. And so the whole purpose of good government is not to act as a cudgel to try to curtail those rights, but instead a device that is created and instituted among men to try to preserve and protect those rights. And so that's what Sam Adams is really getting to. Even if the government wants to and is doing very bad things, they can't actually really take it away from you in the strictest sense. And you only need to take a cursory look at history throughout the monarchs and dictators throughout history. They were never really able to fully take away those rights because they're given to you by God and written on the heart of every man by God's finger. So ultimately, that is where the rights do come from. And really a good rule of thumb to help understand this is that there is no such thing as a right that can come from the uh, come at the expense of another. So for example, if you believe that medical care is a human right, that means that somewhere, somebody who is a doctor has to provide care to you whether they want to or not. They have some kind of obligation to serve you whether or not they actually desire to. Now, most doctors enter that practice specifically because they do want to help people. But regardless, you can't be entitled to another person's labor or their knowledge base or their skill set or whatever else it is. If a right requires something from another person, then it can't be an inherent right because it's not something you have naturally. I can't have a right to an education because I'm not born with a formal education available to me. It's not something that happens right out of the room. But I do have freedom of speech. I do have the right to petition people with their address of grievances. Now, they may not take it all that well, but the point is I can still do it. I still have the right to property and things, uh, the fruits of my labor. All of those things are natural rights that are 
really ingrained into me from the moment I am on this earth. That's not true with all of these other things that people try to promote as rights. And so there can never be a right that requires action from another person, because if so, it's not a natural right. It's not an inherent right. So you can't have a, a natural right to health care because that makes doctors slaves. You can't have a natural right to education because that would make teachers slaves. You can't have a natural right to housing because that would mean whoever builds or plans your housing, that would make them slaves. You can't have a right to the goods or services of another person. All of your rights have to come from God, and that means they have to be natural and inborn from the time that you are created in the womb all the way up until your natural death. That's how long your rights last. But the reason that they lie about this one so vigorously is because ultimately they want government to be God. And government is a really, really crappy God. It's just not good at being God. It's tried for centuries and it's never really worked out well for them. But they want that so bad and that's why they have to lie and tell you over and over again, oh no, your rights come from government. Because if your rights come from government, they can change them at any time to suit their needs, not yours. If your rights are something that comes from God, then there are certain things that they just can't do. There are certain things they can't touch. There are certain shackles that they would rather not be there that will always be there. Because that means that there are certain things that God has decided that they get no say in. And that's why the left so vehemently fights this idea that your rights come from God. Because if the rights come from government, then they get to say what your rights are. If the rights come from God, they have no say whatsoever. And that's why that system is so much better, because nobody, no matter how corrupt, as long as your rights are protected, can usurp your rights. And that's ultimately why they really, really hate this idea of God-given rights. And it all springs from this idea that government is God. That's why I say it's a rival religion. All right, so that's going to be it for us this evening. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that I've said something here that's helpful. And hopefully we'll get to see each other again real soon. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.